internet work. Today's episode is entitled Transitions and it's all about becoming a senior resident. So today we have the entire executive board and we're recording over Zoom um, and we're going to talk about some of the questions that you guys had on Twitter about transitioning to becoming an SMR or a senior resident in internal medicine. So to start off with our introductions, we're going to reintroduce ourselves and we're going to also talk about what we're transitioning to this year. Um, so Zara, why don't you start? Hi, I'm Zara Morali. I am one of the co-developers of the internet work. Uh, I'm currently uh, finishing up my residency at McMaster University in internal med, and I'm transitioning into general internal medicine fellowship at, at Western University. And I'm Leia Karianopoulos, another co-developer of the podcast. Um, I too am finishing up my core internal medicine uh, residency at McMaster and transitioning into critical care fellowship at McMaster University as well. And I'm Allison. I'm the creator of the Internet Work podcast. It's been, I guess, now five years since I first started this, which is crazy, um, but only three years since we started releasing our first podcast. Um, so I am transitioning from a general internal medicine fellowship into a clinical associate uh, position at uh, the University of Toronto in the Division of General Internal Medicine. So um, we'll start with the uh, first question from at Steftomycin. Uh, she asks, I'm worried about keeping on top of the whole list and forgetting parts of the plan for each patient. What system has worked for different SMRs? All right, Leah, you're okay. up. I get to go first. Um, so, I mean, I think it's a fear for absolutely everyone. It can be super intimidating to try and keep up with the list. For me, really, I found that the key was, especially with new admissions each day, making sure you're really honed in and paying attention and taking the time to review the details and getting to know them well up front, because that's the time when sort of you're getting all this information handed to you by the overnight team. So if you do a good job of trying to take notes and retain it and make sure it's detailed on the list, or at least on your list, it makes it a lot easier to then go sort of get to know the patient see them on that first day and carry that forward rather than trying to catch up later. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think SMRs have um, a tendency to really want to know everything about every patient on day one. And the reality is that even staff don't do that. Um, everyone does their best to know what the big issues are for everyone, but in terms of in-depth knowing everything about every patient that does take time. And usually it will take you two to three days at least, if not a bit longer to get comfortable with the patients who have already been on the list, especially those who've been there for a really long time. So I think putting in the effort and making sure you know what's important for each patient on the first couple of days and then really doing the deep dive um, afterwards um, helps you kind of keep on top of the list and make sure you know uh, everything you need to know and everything you wanna know about the patient. Yeah. The one thing I would add is I think for me, reading the list, uh, I can only memorize so much by reading a patient's problems from a list. Um, so it really helps me to actually just see the patient in person, associate them with their problems, and that helps me for long-term memory of their issues. So we have a question from at Dr. Flashheart. What I've found difficult so far is initiating management for and monitoring sicker patients in the ED while the full consult is underway. Um, Allison, what do you think about that? Yeah, so I think um, 
So I think there's a couple of ways to approach this. So the first thing is that Emerge, as part of their um, role as emergency physicians, should have ideally um, triaged them and stabilized them prior to them referring over to medicine. So don't ever be afraid to ask if, for instance, somebody doesn't have an IV um, or needs a line or needs to start pressors or needs fluids or needs antibiotics beforehand to ask Emerge to start that. Um, while you're receiving the consult. Um, I think, you know, as, as a senior, I always made it kind of a rule, even though I liked procedures, that I wasn't going to do procedures overnight unless I had a second set of hands in case, for instance, a junior needed me, it was time to review, um, or a code went off. So I kind of, you know, if there was a line that needed to be put in, I always asked Emerge to do that for me um, if they deemed it necessary. So my big key point would be, you know, start the most important things that are critical and potentially life-saving, um, and then everything else, uh, you have time. Yeah, I mean, I would, I completely agree, and I would add that I think that is one of the really hard parts of the transition is going from the junior role, where you are trying to get as much information as possible about the patient, their history, um, what caused them to come in, like you are looking for every detail and it's very hard to let go of that as the senior um, but I think you just have to remind yourself that it's it's you need to pick and choose what information is actually going to help you I would say also just have a system so that you're not missing you're making sure you look at every ECG of a patient that comes in and you're looking at all the labs um, at first glance uh, when you're getting uh, the consult or shortly after so that nothing is missed um, in the time that it takes between you getting the consult and reviewing with the JMR. So our next one is from at Lissy Legs. I think I'm saying that right. Um, and she says, I'm not sure how to find the sweet balance between a helicopter parent and a supported independence. We start with Zara. I guess I have two pearls of wisdom for this. So, um, firstly, for helicopter parent, I think I, I think you can be a helicopter parent, but very silently overnight or when you're working with a junior. Um, so we discussed that uh, when you're getting your initial consults, you're you're doing some initial management, um, and you'll likely tell your junior about the management that you're doing. But then while they're working on the consult. Um, as soon as you get a chance, you can also sort of go back on the notes and sort of look up the patient, get the information you need, um, sort of in the background while they're doing their work. Um, and the other thing I would say is that in terms of being a helicopter parent and supported independence, I, I would pick my battles or choose, choose the pearls that you're going to give the junior overnight. So for example, um, you know, if I prefer 500 ml of Ringer's lactate, but the junior says 500 ml of normal saline, like, that's not something that I'm going to dwell on. Everyone's uh, very reasonable. Everyone can choose um, uh, variations in their management, and that's okay. The juniors don't have to pick exactly what you would pick at all times. I mean, take that with a grain of salt. Like, of course, for big management um, decisions, it is important to, to have those learning points and those discussions. Uh, but I would say... In terms of helicopter parent, make sure that you're not picking apart every single little thing that's different from what you would do. Allison? Yeah, I would agree um, with everything Zara said. Um, I think what I've always told my juniors when I was a senior, especially for things, you know, there's a lot of things in medicine that we've come to believe are right 
or wrong. And the reality is there are a lot of things that are not that black and white. And a lot of things come down to practice preference. There's a lot of things with either minimal or shaky evidence or ambiguous evidence. And so what I usually would say to my juniors for stuff that really, you know, you could go either way was as long as you can support your decision in the morning, mm-hmm. or as long as you can support your decision with whatever resource. So whether you read up to date, whether you talk to the patient and there was a reason for not doing one thing over the other, like they said, you know, I don't want to take Lasix. I can't take Lasix or, you know, I can't take this antibiotic. And so you start a different one, whatever it is, um, if you can support it and there is a logic behind it and it's not going to cause harm either by delaying an appropriate treatment or by causing significant side effect, then I would generally be okay with it. So this one, we've combined two questions together because there are some similarities. So at Kayla Dadgar and at Shirley Schuster said, I think the biggest learning curve for me will be managing many consults coming in at once. Um, And similar to what people have mentioned before and ensuring I'm able to oversee patients, provide teaching and admit patients efficiently. Uh, Zara, do you want to take this one first? Sure. I think this is a good question for me uh, because I'm like the least organized person that I know. Uh, that's so, not true at all. You're the, the most craziest, organized person. That is the no, craziest no, no, thing no, I've ever not, heard. Absolutely not true. In, in, terms, in terms of like <laughs> that is the craziest thing I've in, ever heard. In yeah. terms of like making like charts and like organizing things, in terms of like organizing consults, I feel like I have to devise dedicated tricks to force myself to be organized. So like, as Leah was saying, I use the whiteboard very religiously. Um, But even beyond that, I have like a paper whiteboard that I use that I just keep for myself. And even I can't trust myself to actually make the time in the day to fill out all the columns and write like labs, patient name. So I have to print out the, so I guess that is organized, but I have to force myself to do that. Exactly. So I would just to... like to put in a plug for the fact that Zara single-handedly got me through the last three years of internal medicine. I can't even count the number of times she'd be like, oh, did wow. you send this email that you were supposed to a week ago? Or, oh, what about this thing you were supposed to RSVP to? Zara that, is yeah, that is like the most wild thing <laughs> I've ever heard anyone say. You are the most organized person yeah, I know. Yeah, I okay, maybe I'm, I'm very scatterbrained then. So I, I have to have this sort of piece of paper in front of me that forces me, okay, I, I need to put the patient's name in the sticker there. So at least I have like a physical representation of my brain on paper. Um, so I, I think devising some sort of system for yourself that works for you, whether it's getting a progress note and just putting the stickers on it or having a more formal list is very important. Yeah, I would also say that eyeballing, you know, a lot of seniors think eyeballing also involves like going into the room and talking to them and really having your plan where sometimes I would just do a walk around the eMERGE um, and eyeball one patients I've already seen to make sure they're still doing okay. Um, two, eyeball my residents and make sure they're doing okay. Um, and three, you're, you're talking about like a, from the curtain eyeball. Yeah. yeah. Like just walking yeah. around, but yeah, like just walking around sort of the like emergency department just to make yeah. sure everything is like going how it's supposed to. Um, and if they're not like residents can call me in if they see me, which has happened before. Um, and, um, Three, like with the new patients that are coming in, if you go and just look from the curtain, you can see which one's on BiPAP. You can see which one's in rest mm-hmm. distress. You can see who um, the nurses are more worried about or the nurses may flag you and say, I'm worried about this person. And you may you know, find some urgency in that because you have to remember that 
there often is some time elapsed between when the emergency physician has seen them and when they are referred to you. And so things can change with acute patients in just a few hours. Um, so I often will do that as well um, in order to triage patients if I really don't know, if I get one, a whole bunch of people, and two, I really don't know, you know who is more acute. Jimmy Z512 says, I'm definitely scared of the prospect of knowing an entire list while simultaneously teaching JMRs, med students, dispo rounds, et cetera. Leah, I'll let you uh, take this one away. All right. Um, I mean, I think number one, 100%, I, I think this is a fear shared by everyone coming into it at many levels. Um, and I just want to recognize that that's not sort of it's not unusual and it's a good thing. Um, I think recognize that some of this starts to become more streamlined as you know the patients better. So disposition rounds, for example, you're going over the whole list every day, at least at MAC, that's what we do with our allied healthcare team. But you're not, you don't have 20 plus new patients every single day where you're trying to figure out the disposition plan. Um, in terms of doing teaching, I think number one, recognizing that teaching doesn't always have to be this like, let's sit down and talk through my entire approach to X topic. And I think a lot of times we don't give ourselves credit for the teaching that happens during the day. And while it's nice to have sessions where you can sit down with the team and have those conversations, that doesn't need to happen every single day, all the time. So picking pearls, picking specific things to talk about. Um, I think is really important and recognizing. So during handover, let's say a patient's hypokalemic and someone talks about how they managed it, that's a quick, easy five-minute conversation about here are my top pearls. Yeah. Um, teaching can be whatever format you like it to be. So it can be bedside teaching. It can be incorporating it into when you're reviewing the list or running the list. It can be a, when you're running new consults. It can be anything like Wednesday mornings, we each read one ECG or I bring one ECG and we read it as a group. Um, and Or it can be a chalk talk. Um, and for me, what I always found was Teaching gets difficult when everyone thinks it's optional, um, and it shouldn't be uh, because CTU and other subspecialties, but CTU especially, is always so busy. And in many ways, you know, you learn from seeing patients, but you don't want um, your juniors or your clerks to think that the educational experience is only from that. You want them to feel like there is a space for them to say, this is what I feel like I'm not learning. Can we talk about that? I would also say, and this is a trick that um, Allison actually sort of taught me um, at the beginning. Yes, yes, (laughs) sort of. The first week that I'm on um, service, I try to meet up with my juniors in an organic way, whether it's sort of walking to a different ward or grabbing a coffee with them. And during that conversation of getting to know them, I also try to ask um, what are one or two things that you would like us uh, like like to learn this month? Um, because what they might want to learn may not be in a line as to what I think they should learn. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Internet Work. If you have any questions at all about residency, please tweet at us or follow us on Twitter. We're happy to answer any questions that you might have, or you can also email us at theinternetwork at gmail.com. This episode was recorded by Alison Lai, Sar Morali, and Leah Karianopoulos. This episode was produced by Alison Lai. The Internet Work series is created by Allison Lai and developed by Zara Morali and Leah Karianopoulos. Theme song by Lachman Vizantha Mohan. If you like this episode, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We don't have any new infographic for this episode, but you can find all of our old infographics and episodes on our website at www.theinternetwork.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.